This is Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Three friends. Three former TV reporters. Delving into whatever interests us. News, not news. What affects our lives? Because it's probably affecting yours too. Mm. I'm Kim Inslee. I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And now on with the pod. Welcome everyone to Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. I'm Kim Inslee. And I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And today we are talking about the role science plays in all of our lives. And I mean, let's face it, ladies, the science of fermenting grapes plays a huge Ooh. role in this podcast. Amen. There are also some very yes. remarkable women, past and present, who've really made their mark in the field. Yeah, science is all about discovery, which means as the work continues, our understanding of the natural world and what we can do with that changes. Exactly. So we're going to bring in our guest who has made it her life's mission to make science accessible to all of us, starting with our children. Liz Heineke, the kitchen pantry scientist, has written multiple books under that moniker. And you may know it from um, all of her appearances on TV and radio and everything. She gives the adults and kids lives the means to introduce them to the wonders of science with fun, easy to do science experiments that ignite a passion for learning. And she's just wonderful. Welcome, Liz. Hi, it's so I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Um, so you have written a book that I really, really enjoyed. When I first saw that you had written it, I was excited and you were kind enough to send me a, a, a copy before it was published. And it's called Radiant, The Dancer, The Scientist, and A Friendship Forged in Light. So I have to ask you, who is the dancer, who is the scientist, and what is the book about? Okay, so the dancer is uh, a woman from Chicago named Loie Fuller. She was born just outside of Chicago. And um, she was an actress who was never very successful in the United States, but she was very interested in technology um, and incorporated it into a dance, which she took to Paris. And within weeks of arriving in Paris, she was the most famous dancer in Paris. And she remained famous in Paris for pretty much up until her death. Um, so, um, and the scientist is Marie Curie, who most people have heard of. Um, a lot of people know her name, but they aren't familiar with what she did exactly. And she was the first person to really work with radioactivity and measure it and describe it. She coined the phrase radioactivity and she discovered two radioactive elements, which was a huge deal back then because they were still putting together the periodic table of the elements. So she added two elements to that table. Um, along with her husband, Pierre, who worked with her um, by her side until his death. So those are the two, the two women that I write about in the book. And the, the story is set, um, it's a true story. It's set in Belle Epoque, Paris, um, in theaters, in laboratories, in uh, Rodin's um, studio. It's set, um, a, couple, a couple scenes are set actually in the United States too. So it's, it's a story of the creative environment um, in Paris at the time, and these two women who were really immigrants to Paris um, and the great accomplishments, um, all, all the things they accomplished in their lifetime. And I hope you were able to go research this in Paris. It just sounds amazing. <laughs> well, of course I did. <laughs> so why was it so important to you to write this book besides the research component? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I like telling science stories because I think that that's what draws um, the public into science. And I, 
I, I first started writing about Marie Curie, but as I was researching her, I stumbled across Loie Fuller's name and I had never heard of Loie Fuller, mm -hmm. um, but she was one of the first modern dancers. She was one of the, the mothers of modern dance, but she also was the first person to ever darken a stage and um, use spotlights in, in a very modern way. I was, I had to write about these two women because they were friends. Um, it's, it was the intersection of art and science. And I felt like this was a writing about the two of them together and their friendship made them seem real to, to people today. When you tell a story about someone, if you want to invite an audience in, you have to show them real people, right? You show them, you know, people's imperfections, but also their accomplishments. So, so writing about these two women together, I was hoping would reach a sort of broader audience than writing about either of them. You know, if I, you just write about a dancer, you reach one audience. If you just write about a scientist, you tend to reach another audience. I wrote this book as creative nonfiction because I wanted it to read like a novel. So I wanted to draw lots of people into the worlds of science and art and dance and literature who might not normally um, read about these things. Um, and so I did it in kind of an unusual way, but I think the response has been good. People, a lot of people tell me, oh, I really learned something. So I love this so much because so, so my daughter loves art and I would love for her to be, and she also likes science, but you know, as a girl, you know, this is, so this is the whole stereotype of, you know, girls in science and that still exists today, sadly. But it, I love this idea of her reading a story and she loves Paris and she loves baking and for her to read a story about a dancer and an artist and then learn about another woman who is a scientist and maybe sparking some inspiration to go down a totally different path. I, I love that so much. Yeah, and I tried to write about how these women inspired each other too. So besides the fact that they were friends, in particular, Loie, you know, the artist was, she was a dancer, she was a theater, she, you know, she was, she was a lighting expert, but she was hugely inspired by Marie Curie. They actually met because Loie wrote a letter to Marie asking for some radium, this glowing radioactive element, because she wanted to light her costume. <laughs> I love that. But it's just so a perfect much. example of how science and art, you know, can yeah. illuminate each other and, and bring new ideas um, into, into, you know, these bubbles that people tend to exist in. Yeah. yeah, she that that was that kind of cracked me up because of course back then they had no idea how dangerous they that radium was. I mean, I think Madame Curie did know, obviously she she handled it with care. Loie had no clue. She like she wanted to smear it all over herself. And of course it was so rare that Marie Curie would not give just give it to her. For those, you know, for those reasons, you kind of think, oh, if they only knew what we know now. Um, but I wanted to to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit, Liz, because you have a science background and you have a communications background. And, and this is your story of how you communicate something cool about science to the rest of the world. Why is that such a passion of yours to be a science communicator? It's an unusual thing to choose to be. I think it's important because I'm a curious person. I think curiosity makes life, I mean, if you're a curious person, you can look into the world and see more things, more possibilities. And I think uh, by inspiring curiosity, you know, obviously I do it in kids through like we were talking about all these different on ramps, maybe someone likes art. So you talk about the science of paint, someone likes cooking. So you talk about food science. Once you can tell science stories and teach people to see the science in the world around them, 
I think that science does, it becomes something that's not separate and scary. It, you realize that it's part of your life. And if you read about scientists like Marie Curie, you realize that most scientists are working to try to make people's lives better. Um, and I think that's really important. I think, you know, I grew up, I love movies like E.T., but uh, often in, in the media in the past, scientists are always betrayed as, you know, or Dr. Doofenshmirtz, you know, they're the, they're the <laughs> evil villain, they're the, the bad guys. But I think that the world needs to see that, that most scientists are, they're in it because it's interesting, they're in it because they're curious, but most scientists are trying to make the world a better place, whether it's through improving our health, improving the, the water quality, in the environment to help um, to help protect the species that live in the ocean. I mean, for whatever reason, um, I think listening to science stories make people more compassionate um, towards each other, but also um, it makes science less scary and more approachable and people learn to see it in the world around them. So. So Liz, whether you know it or not, you're quite the icon and you really do present yourself as, you know, this strong female in a predominantly male role world. And it still is. My sister-in-law is a chemistry teacher and she's one of the few high school science teachers in really in the state of Minnesota. I think they're like 20% of them are females. How does that, does that weight carry with you at all? You know, knowing that kids recognize you, parents recognize you, how does that kind of inform your work? Well, I actually have Kim to thank for that a lot because um, if when I back when I started doing this when Kim first invited me on to her television morning show to demonstrate science most of the and and I've talked to other scientists around the country about this most of the scientists you see on television are men I think it was really important to have and I when I would go on TV and I still do it I just wear normal clothes I think it's important for people to see someone that is like another mom showing them, grab this out of your cupboard and do science with your kids. It's not, oh, you have to have goggles. You have to have a lab coat. You have to be a man. Um, and once, and I do science outreach at schools once. And I, I actually had a little kindergartner come up to me and say, you don't look like a scientist. And I said, oh, and this actually happened. I just blew my mind. She said, oh, I said, well, what do you think a scientist looks like? And she said, she said, scientists are men, old men. And I just thought, okay, so how great is it for her to see her friend's mom up here doing science? And the fact that I was, that I'm able to, in the Twin Cities, regularly go on television, and here I am, just another mom, doing science, using these words. I think that's really important, and I don't think you see that um, many other places. So I say, you know, to all the, more people should be inviting women on to demonstrate, talk about science. Yeah. Um, Are you optimistic that the tide is turning? I mean, do you think that, that more and more younger girls, women are looking at science as an option for their careers? I do. And I think that um, that's one good thing about social media. I think that there are a lot of role models. Um, I've written about a number of them in my books. Um, Like for example, there's a chemist, Dr. Rachel Burks, um, who is a very active on Twitter. She's a very good science communicator, but um, people like her are role models. There are lots of female scientists, um, lots of scientists of color writing books about science for the public to consume and to, and to see how science affects different communities of people and 
who gets to be a scientist, you know, traditionally in our society. So I think that um, I do think the tide is changing, but I think a lot of that is because a lot of these women who who are role models, um, these these women and you know, I don't have a PhD, I just have a master's, but these women who are actively working in research and academia who are taking time to go on social media or taking time to go on uh, like TV programs, like um, Picture a Scientist, I think was on, it was on PBS or something, but they go, they take time to talk to the public about science and stand up in front of them as a female scientist. So I do think it's changing and I'm very happy about that. Well, I have no postgraduate degree, so I bow down to you, Liz. <laughs> um, but I do know that in our world today, science is so critical because we have climate change we're talking about. We're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, all of these things in our lives are so directly tied to science. And yet um, it's controversial, right? So what is it that scientists have gotten wrong in the way that they communicate to people um, so that people view them as this otherworldly, not you know, they don't know what my life is like kind of thing. And, and the message just never gets through. I think the message has changed. I think for a long time, scientists were very separate in academia in particular, were very separate from the public. They were up in, you know, their ivory tower or whatever they called it. Um, scientists have been trying much harder to communicate with the public. And um, scientists, I think it, it's crazy, but scientists talk about things evidence-based things. So they say, here's the evidence that the climate is changing. What they've learned, and I've seen lots of studies recently that a lot of people don't, telling people the facts and showing them the evidence doesn't change their mind. So I think scientists are trying to figure out ways to communicate with people better. Um, maybe some of it is through science storytelling. I think a lot of it is also about making science relatable so people can see how it directly affects them. I mean, like it or not, people are selfish, right? And often they won't change until something is directly affecting them. So if you can say, you know, the trees up at your cabin are dying, they're gonna be gone in 10 years because it's getting warmer and you're gonna have to plant a different kind of trees. That's the kind of thing that people can see it happening with their own eyes. And I think, um, I think that often people have to see it before they believe it. And I think that's sad, but I think it's, scientists have been trying very hard to communicate and it's just been tough. When they don't care about the evidence, it's hard to change their mind about something. Yeah, and, I, and do you think in the social media world that we live in where so many people are in their own echo chamber, does that make it even harder to break through and convince people otherwise? Absolutely, because they're being inundated with misinformation. I mean, the, <laughs> the vaccine stuff is crazy. The people calling themselves a doctor who actually have no medical degree will spout all this misinformation and people will believe it. And I've seen smart people bring me stuff saying, I read this. And I just think, did you, people, people aren't doing their homework and checking their credentials of, of who is giving them information. So yeah, I think it's really difficult. I think, I mean, I think society has become so compartmentalized that it's hard to pass information out of, you know, one bubble to another. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm hopeful, but um, it's, a, it's a huge problem for scientists and for public health people, clearly. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's circle back. So Liz, do you think that some of your work then, especially trying to engage children, do you think that might change the narrative in the future? Because you're getting them to 
believe what they see and to believe in science. I do. And I am trying to get them. I, I believe that kids are smart. And when they start dig digging into problems, they will see what they will observe the evidence. I also know that from doing a lot of the outreach I've done that when I'm out doing outreach with kids, whether it's about like ocean acidification or climate change, I'm doing these hands-on projects with kids. But as I'm talking to the kids, their parents are listening too. So I do think that by reaching out to kids, you are always reaching a broader audience. And I think that's huge. I think people underestimate the importance of it. Um, and kids are open-minded. That's one thing that's so amazing about kids. That's why kids are so creative that they are like sponges and they, they aren't living in these intellectual bubbles that adults have put themselves into. I have a super important question. Do your kids even like science or are yeah. they just like, mom, leave it alone? <laughs> they do like it. I mean, they don't, they're done with being in like videos and pictures and, uh, but they, no, they like it. My, my son, uh, who just came home from college for Thanksgiving, he's a biology data science major. Like Ooh, I think, good choice. Yeah. I think it's not when you grow up with it, it's not scary. It doesn't seem hard. I mean, I'm not great at chemistry, but my, my sophomore in high school is just tackling it like it's, like it's just another class. I mean, I think, I do think we have a lot of really wonderful teachers. Um, I think teachers can make all the difference, but um, I think if you make, if you teach your kids to see science, if they're just, you know, baking cookies or you're out for a walk and they're, you say that's, that's an oak tree, um, that's a maple tree, stuff like that makes science seem like part of them instead of a separate thing. And I think that's what's really important. And I think that's by telling stories, like this, the story of Radiant, the story of Marie Curie, the fact that they were just doing this sort of random research because they were interested in radioactivity and she discovered radium. And then they figured out how to use this to treat cancer. And we still use radiation therapy today. When you read that, you just, it, it blows your mind. You're like, anyone who argues ever against basic research isn't looking forward because anything you discover, you might not even find an application for it right away, but they're almost always like something will pop up in the future. So I'd yeah, love Julie. for you to write a book on fermenting grapes and who started that. <laughs> That'll have to be my next ago. book. <laughs> so Julie mentioned, you know, bringing children into it. Marie Curie's daughter, well, both of her daughters were somewhat involved. One daughter, yeah. very involved. Yeah. Um, Won a was, Nobel prize. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and Marie Curie won too, right? She won too. Yep. Um, so what in your research most surprised you about Marie Curie? That was what, what most surprised me. I did not know. I knew she had won two Nobel prizes. I did not know that both of them, the first one was almost not awarded to her because they just wanted to give it to her husband, even though it was mostly her work. Same old story. Huh? The second one, yep. they didn't want to give to her because they found out that she had had an affair. This double standard. It wouldn't matter if a man had an affair, but they were kidding. And the first time at school, I like this. The first time Pierre stood up for her and he said, I am not going to accept this prize without Marie because it's her work too. The second time Pierre had died, she stood up for herself. She was like, nope, I'm coming to Stockholm. <laughs> like I, so I think that's great. I think She's, I think it's great that she had a supportive partner who, who stood up for her, but then I think it's even more amazing that when she was on her own, she stood up for herself because she had done this work and she wanted, she knew she should be recognized for it on her own terms, without Pierre, 
she figured out how to chemically um, isolate radium, which uh, was just an amazing thing. It changed the world. And she deserved that award and she went to get it. I didn't know that because she was a woman, she almost didn't get either one of her Nobels. Why am I not shocked? <laughs> right. Yeah. I know. Right. But we all are a little bit because we're all silent and that doesn't happen. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say, so you're not done writing books. We understand that there's another one in the works. Yeah. I'm always writing kids books. I have some more of those coming out, but I'm working on another book for adults. Radiant was creative nonfiction. Um, though the stories of Loe and Marie were too good to you couldn't make that stuff up. I mean, they had such fascinating lives. Um, but my next book, the woman I'm writing about is also a very important um, woman, but she burned all of her letters. Less is known about her. She was married to a very, very famous man. Um, but I, I'm still doing a ton of research. I'm researching it as if it were nonfiction, but I'm writing it as historical fiction. So. Oh, I can't wait. Carrot that, is dangling. That right? must be so fun. I mean, it's such a departure from what you've done in the past. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. Like to go to libraries and look at, read through old letters and it's, and look through old notebooks. I mean, it's amazing, right? Researching Radiant was just amazing. I spent a ton of time at the uh, New York Public Library for Performing Arts, um, looking through Lowy's stuff. And then I went to Paris and I wanted to walk through, I wanted to see where they lived and I went to a, uh, the Folie Bergère and watched a performance there to see where Loewe performed. It really hasn't changed that much, but like getting into the places helps you write about them. It's hard to write about a place you haven't been. So um, the research is so much fun. You so are you gonna come back? Oh, I'm sure all <laughs> of us would love to. Um, are you gonna come back though when you're, the book is, when you can talk more about it? Oh yes, please. Hopefully, hopefully in the next six months or so. I'm going on another trip for research in January. So hopefully <laughs> good be time. far along. Yeah. By then. <laughs> we know where the research is, but good timing, Liz. <laughs> well, Liz, we want to thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. This I has been book. so this, yeah, I'm so inspired. I need to go out right now and uh and get that book and read it with my kiddos. I thought you're gonna say I'm gonna go outside and point out trees to my kids. <laughs> that too. It's science. You know, it's science. <laughs> Who knew I could actually do science? Right. I'm learning so much. You're all strong, uh, hardworking women. I'm sure that Marie and Loie would be happy that we're all talking about them today. Yeah. Liz Heineke is the kitchen pantry scientist, and you can find her many kids' books with all kinds of fun experiments, and those seem to come out on a regular basis. Way to go, Liz. She's got the wine glass with her. I haven't touched mine yet, but I will. Yeah, I've been talking too much, but... Not at all. I think we, I think we need a cheers, cheers. to cheers. Clink us out. Zoom clink. Zoom clink. Cheers. Clink. Thank you, Liz. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs> Three Women and a Bottle of Wine is supported by 515 Productions. 515 Productions is a video production business with base camps in Minneapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Learn more at 515productions.com. Our logo was created by Aaliyah DeSalt, a creativity guru offering art workshops to everyone from business executives to book clubs because we all have untapped creative potential just waiting to be unleashed. You can find her contact information on our website. You can stay up to date on our podcast by checking out our website, threewomenandabottleofwine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you'll find behind the scenes photos and of course, much, much more. 
Be sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.